0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. One in five couples identify money as their greatest relationship challenge. And when it comes to investing, 40% of couples disagree on how much risk to take. But with honesty and humility, investing together can be rewarding. And not just in terms of money. I want to
1: know how best to grow wealth with our partners and strategies to minimise disagreements along the way. And in today's dumb question of the week, if everything goes wrong and you get divorced, would you rather have the pension or the property? Okay, let's get into it. So most of the time on this podcast, Roman, we're working under the assumption that there's one decision maker when it comes to investing, and that's me, right? I'm the king of my kingdom. I can do whatever I want with my money. But in reality, most people are investing as part of a couple. It's more of a team sport than an individual sport,
0: isn't it? Yeah, that's certainly true. And when I speak to people during coaching sessions, they often choose to have their partner present, sometimes a baby as well, which is always kind of cute. I do like it when both partners are present, because then you get a more balanced view of their goals. But it's difficult, isn't it, when you're first starting a relationship to kick things off with questions about what's your risk appetite?
1: (laughs) That's not a first date question, is it? Or at least if it is, it's not about finances.
0: (laughs) But I mean, that would be such a kind of turn off, wouldn't it? Or what percentage of your salary do you save?
1: For most people, that's a turn off. (laughs) I imagine that would be exactly what you want to hear on a first date, (laughs) Roman. Well, surprisingly, no. I mean, there comes a point in a relationship Now, where that point is, is a judgment call when you have to be more open and more honest and sort of try and reconcile two people who have different levels of knowledge when it comes to finances and investing, maybe different levels of interest on it, as well as the attitudes to risk and time horizons and things
0: like that. But probably if you had to identify the biggest causes of dispute in relationships, I suspect that money would be one of the top reasons why people fall out because of these difficult things to discuss. People often talk to me because they can't discuss these things with their family. And so, yeah. I mean, I had one conversation with a guy who was hiding in his car and uh, <laughs> so he didn't want his wife to hear what we he were saying. And that was great. I love that guy. I mean, it doesn't sound the best approach to a relationship to me. <laughs> well, look, I mean, at a certain point, you know, you kind of know the relationship is fraught. So you're probably thinking this is not going to last. So at that point, you know, maybe you start to mentally disassociate yourself anyway.
1: Okay, uh, interesting way to start our Valentine's Day special, (laughs) (laughs) Roman.
0: But it's funny that, you know, this is just not a romantic topic. It's not something which is even considered to be interesting by most people. And it's probably the last thing they consider when they start to enter into a relationship with someone.
1: Yeah. So it's not romantic, but I guess at some point it does become necessary to have that conversation. I mean, how do you think about it when there's a relationship and the people in it, for example, have wildly different levels of knowledge and experience when it comes to investing? Because that can't be easy.
0: Well, I always say that whenever you make a plan, you should involve both parties. And if there's more than two parties, then, you know, include everyone that's affected, often the children as well if they're kind of grown-up children.
1: Do you often talk to polyamorous couples? (laughs) seldom.
0: Quite a few gay couples, which I kind of like, because that's a much more interesting dynamic in terms of how they split up the decisions between one another. Usually there's still one partner that kind of dominates in the financial decisions because of interest or salary or whatever. And that's
1: true across all types of couples, right? Not just heterosexual couples.
0: Yeah, and when I speak to men and women, it's usually the man that dominates the conversation. Still, even now. Yeah. <laughs> not always. I mean, often the woman has a very high salary, larger than her husband's, and she kind of has more of an input, in fact, than her husband, if that's the case. But generally what I see is that the man's doing all the talking.
1: Yeah, I can not believe that. <laughs> that does sound like us, doesn't it? Chant a lot of nonsense.
0: <laughs> but the kind of comments the women make are really interesting because they're often quite insightful and often display a level of knowledge which is comparable with the man. So, you know, you just have to navigate that cautiously. I'll put it that way.
1: There's some interesting stats, Roman, that women, on average, are better investors than men. Have you seen this?
0: Yeah, and I always say that during the calls. I always say, well, in fact... (laughs) You should be listening more to what she's saying, because women generally have a better approach to investing. For starters, they don't trade too much. And that's the biggest predictor of whether people underperform. If you trade more, you make less. That's a very strong correlation that people notice in the data.
1: Yeah, there was a study by Neil Stewart, who's a professor of behavioral science. And yeah, he found that on average, women trade nine times a year, whereas men trade 13 times a year. So that can explain a lot of the difference. He found that women outperform men in the UK by 1.8% per year. That's
0: massive. That is massive, yeah. Because all you have to do really is nothing. You know, I mean, that's that's all you have to do. But I think men have a different mindset when it comes to investing. Firstly, I noticed this also when I was tutoring physics and maths, which is that the boys were much more confident, but not more capable. Yeah. If you know what I mean. So they think they'd know the answer, but they may not. Whereas the girls would be much more modest about it but equally capable with maths or physics. So I see that in the investing world as well.
1: And Fidelity Investments did a study in the US, which showed, again, an outperformance by women versus men in investing, but it was slightly smaller. It was like 0.4% per year, which sounds small, but if you compound that over a long time, again, it makes a huge difference.
0: And I think there were other studies that were done in, there was a Finnish study, which is one I've quoted in the past as well, which found the same thing. So I think the mismatch between engagement in investment between women and men is something that deeply worries me. But I do think it's a cultural difference. There's nothing which should make women less willing to invest. And also, I think their attitude to risk is different to men, which makes them perceive equity stocks to be more risky than normal savings as cash, for example. Yeah. And of course, the terrible thing is that they'll underperform if they invest in cash. Whereas if they invest in equity, they'll get much better returns long term.
1: Because that's the thing when you look at the data. Yes, women who are investing seem to be outperforming men who are investing. But quite a lot fewer women invest than men.
0: So there was a study by BNY Mellon, which said that 45% of women viewed the stock market as too risky for them. And if we look at the statistics in the UK, there was a study by Capital.com, which showed that 29% of female respondents in their survey have traded equity online compared to 47% of men. And that difference would make a huge performance difference over the long term.
1: Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why there's a so-called pensions gap with a lot of women having underinvested for their retirement.
0: So I think if you have a more equal footing all the way along, you know, from the first day of the relationship all the way through, you won't have to sort out all these difficult problems later on in life. You know, I think the sooner you sort it out, the better. But it's such a difficult conversation to have and people aren't comfortable talking about money. It's still a real taboo subject.
1: Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier how there's often a different attitude to risk. It may be that the woman has more risk awareness or risk aversion, but not necessarily. So how do you reconcile in a relationship where one partner wants to take more risk with the investments than the other? Because we mentioned in the introduction, actually, that 40% of couples disagree on how much risk to take. So it's a problem a lot of people are facing.
0: And I think ultimately, you've got to be able to press the veto button on any investment Both members of the relationship have to be able to do that. So if the husband suddenly says, look, I'm going to put £100,000 into crypto and the partner doesn't agree with it, you know, they should be able to veto that decision. But also the planning aspect of it, you know, they should both sit around a table and say, look, this is what our goals are. This is how we're likely to get there. And I think the other key thing is understanding this long term difference in return between stocks and bonds and cash. That's the most important thing to understand, because over the long term, the risk is that you don't take enough risk and that you don't have enough stocks in your portfolio. That has to be understood by everyone. And that should be part of everybody's financial education, but isn't.
1: Yeah, I think the thing to really consider when you're discussing different attitudes to risk is, is that different attitude to risk for a good reason? Like, do you have different time horizons? If you've got a longer one, then you should be more comfortable taking higher levels of risk. Or are there different levels of income, which means that, you know, if you've got much more income than you're spending annually, then yeah, maybe you're comfortable taking more levels of risk. Or is that difference in risk appetite for a less justifiable reason? Something like, you know, you've got different levels of knowledge and someone is scared of the stock market, like you say, because if it's for a good reason, then, yeah, you can have maybe separate investment pots and tailor it to your individual needs. But if it's for a bad reason, then maybe you need to (laughs) talk it through and come to some sort of compromise.
0: Yeah, if it's short term investments, then fine. Have much more cautious portfolios. That makes absolute sense. But if it is long-term stuff, which it often is when we're in these discussions, then you've got to understand that difference between stocks and cash. Because I think a lot of the financial reporting is around things which are exciting, right? When markets crash But the only time you hear about investment is when it goes wrong. You never hear about, oh, stocks are now up (laughs) 10,000% compared to where they were.
1: Well, you do hear those stories, but it's generally about the lottery ticket investments. It's about crypto being up massively or Tesla stock being up massively rather than, yeah, the broad markets crawled up hugely over the last 10 years.
0: Again, because of the focus of journalists, which is to very much focus on what's exciting rather than what works most of the time, which is probably much more useful, but which is never discussed.
1: Now, I wanted to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier, which was that everyone should have a veto in a relationship. Now, I don't know if that's the best way of seeing it, like this kind of double tick approach to investment, where if you want to buy an investment, you both have to sign off. If you want to sell it, you've got to both sign off. Because if no one has the casting vote, then is it not just going to cause sort of a paralysis? Certainly in business, right, you don't want a contract where no one can say, I'm actually going to make this decision.
0: Well, often the way I approach it is to say, have an agreement before things happen. So if equity markets sell off 50%, you both agree you're not going to sell. That's really important. And it's important to have that decision made before it happens and to have it written down, because otherwise you can kind of panic And if one partner is more risk averse, then they're more likely to bail out and say, look, we've just lost a huge amount of money. Let's quickly sell this before we lose even more. Yeah. Whereas, you know, of course, the best thing is to run into the burning building because that's what gives you the best returns. So I think having that understanding before it happens, writing it down is very important. And to understand that it will happen because, you know, that's just part and parcel of investing.
1: Yeah, you need to invest with a plan, especially when you're doing it with someone else, right? Because of these scenarios, like, yeah, you're going to experience market crashes. And I think the key is you have to both sign up for that decision and take equal responsibility. It's not like when the market crashes, one can go, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have been investing. (laughs) It's like in government, right? They have collective cabinet responsibility. Like they all have to own the decisions of the government.
0: And this is exactly the same. I think both people have skin in the game, so they should have responsibility in making the decision. But just make it before things go wrong or before things go right. Because another problem is that if equity surges upwards, there's a tendency to say, oh, look, it can't go up anymore. You know, we should just sell it now. But of course, that's another mistake to make.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, how different couples approach their finances in a broad sense. So some people just combine everything, don't they? maybe when they get married or are suitably serious about the relationship. Whereas other people do keep almost fully separate accounts, right? Yeah,
0: I can see arguments for both. I think if there is a huge difference in the risk appetite, then maybe that's the best solution. You know, no two couples will be the same. You've just got to find something amicable which works for everybody.
1: Yeah, I think there are some downsides to keeping everything separate. Certainly when it comes to efficiency of investing, I think it would make sense to look at your marital portfolio in the round, right? Otherwise, you might both be holding too much cash balance, right, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And also with tax, right? If you're treating everything fully separate, it can be inefficient because you might not be maximising, I don't know, your capital gains tax allowances, right?
0: Yeah. For example, the ISAs, you know, you both have an ISA allowance in the UK. And in the US, the Roth IRA, I guess, is similar. So I think that you know, if you do have the ability to maximise that, it would be crazy not to take advantage of it. Especially
1: when one partner is earning significantly more than the other, it makes much more sense from a tax point of view to be paying into the higher earning partner's pension, right? Because you get tax relief at their
0: marginal tax rate. And also another reason why I think it's good for both partners to be involved in the decision-making process all the way through their lives is that you know, sadly, if one partner passes away, then the other partner knows exactly what the state of play is. They don't inherit this incredibly complex set of financial positions which they have to somehow manage without any inkling about how to do it. Yeah. And the final point I think
1: that maybe counts against having fully separate accounts is that let's say one person is super risk averse and one person likes to take risk. And we've been in a big bull market and then they end up with vastly different levels of wealth. How are you going to go on joint holidays when someone's a multimillionaire (laughs) and the other one just isn't anywhere close to that, right? If you're just treating it as two individuals, it doesn't seem to make sense. I'm not sure how many people do that, but apparently quite a lot. So I read that more than half of couples in the US have at least some separate financial accounts. And in fact, 23% keep everything completely separated between the two in a marriage
0: seems odd to me, but maybe it's just more common than I'm used to. Now, however you come to this kind of compromise between everything being managed individually or everything jointly, the important thing is to be absolutely honest about what you've got and what you're doing.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're keeping financial secrets from each other, <laughs> I think it's never going to end well. But there was an interesting study by creditcards.com in the US, which showed that apparently One third of Americans admit they have financially cheated on their partner. (laughs) I mean, what does financial cheating involve here? So the stats apparently show that 15% of people admit spending more than their partner would be okay with. 9% of people hold secret debt from their partner. 9% of people have a secret credit card. 8% of people have a secret checking account and 8% of people have a secret savings account. And altogether, a third of Americans are not being fully honest with their partner about their finances. What do you make of that?
0: How would you keep it secret? I mean, if you're going to get bills through the post, you'd have to kind of, you know, squirrel them away and say, oh, don't worry about that.
1: Roman, once again, I need to remind you, it's not the 1980s and we have paperless
0: bank accounts these days. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I think that's really odd, you know, to think that you could get away with it. Maybe if they do keep everything separate, you could keep it secret. But if you have joint accounts, you're going to see this stuff coming out.
1: Well, that's the point, isn't it? Some people don't like joint accounts because, I don't know, maybe they feel embarrassed about financial decisions they've made in the past. It can be a hard conversation, right? If you've lost a load of money in the past, maybe your partner won't trust you going forward so much. Or, yeah, you want to spend on things that your partner wouldn't be comfortable with, that probably happens in a lot of marriages <laughs> and maybe if you're not confident about the long-term future you're trying to hide money which you know the courts are going to frown upon if it comes to divorce but some people i guess get away with it
0: if they find it michael
1: yeah if they find those paper statements from it
0: <laughs> i can't find them myself so good luck with that I
1: mean, like you said, however you approach your finances, there's no right or wrong way. You've got to do whatever suits you as a couple. But I think you do need a process where you are honest and you review everything. I don't know, it could be monthly, say, and you compare your spreadsheets or your investments, how they're performing.
0: And also look to see where you are relative to your goals, because that's the key thing. Have targets, have financial goals, and then just assess where you are relative to those. But that's true whether you're in a relationship or not.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting when it comes to financial goals within a relationship. So Fidelity did a study in 2021, and they found that 48% of couples disagree on the age they plan to retire. 51% disagree on how much savings are needed to reach their retirement. As we said, 40% of couples disagree on how much risk to take with their investments. And I found it funny that 34% of people disagree on whether they are themselves savers or (laughs) spenders.
0: You'd have thought you'd know that.
1: But here's the real kicker. Most people say they're savvier than their partner when it comes to investing. 53% of people say they're the better one in the relationship. It reminds me of the stat that when Americans were asked to rank their driving skills, 93% say they're better than average. <laughs>
0: so like, That's a universal thing. Yeah, no, it is. You know, everyone thinks they're above
1: average. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder with all these disagreements within relationships about finances. I mean, could I suggest that maybe people haven't chosen the right partner? Or is a relationship not just about money, Roman? What are you going to tell me?
0: (laughs) It is a bit random, isn't it? You know, the choice of partner. It's not a rational process. It should be, but it's not, given its importance. But you never sit down and think, you know what are the pros and cons of this relationship? You fall for someone, you enter a relationship, and then it either works out or it doesn't. That's usually the way it happens. But it is probably the biggest decision we make,
1: one of them in our lives at least. I know Warren Buffett has some quotes which said, you want to associate with people who are the kind of person you'd like to be and you'll move in that direction. And the most important person by far in that respect is your spouse. He says, marry the right person. I'm serious about that. It will make more difference in your life. It will change your aspirations, all kinds of things. Once again, I think Buffett's nailed it. I mean, it sounds cold in a way, but I think it's pretty important that you really shouldn't marry someone who's financially irresponsible.
0: But the thing is, you don't usually find out until it's too late. You know, you go down the romance route and everything's exciting and you don't really think about the finances until it's far too late. I think with online dating now, you've got more chance of filtering based on certain criteria. (laughs) But usually it's physical appearance. It's not to do with finance or anything like that.
1: Yeah, the Tinder profiles should all come with their sort of ice of balance, shouldn't they?
0: <laughs> Whereas mine was all about apples. Apples? Yeah, I ranked which apples I like best.
1: What app were you on? Tinder. You were on Tinder with your apple ranking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly Worcester's would come out on top. And uh, that's been a big bone of contention in my relationship with Laura. <laughs> <laughs> But it makes my profile stand out. That was the important thing. But I think, you know, you're not going to put the financial stuff in there, but maybe you should, you know, maybe this should be part of the kind of ranking system in one of these online dating apps.
1: I mean, clearly at that early stage, it's ridiculous, right? To talk about finances in any sort of depth. But as it gets more serious, there's things I think you need to know, however you go about getting that information and agreeing on attitudes towards finances. So yeah, it's important to know, are you a saver or a spender? Because I think that's probably at the heart of a lot of these disagreements about money is that one person feels they're making the money and the other person is spending it.
0: That certainly chimes true when I think about previous discussions I've had. Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess there's two different ways of looking at it. Firstly, you've got to understand each other's goals, right? Yeah. Life goals and how that applies to their finances and how they're going to meet those financial goals. But then there's the second question of if they've got bad spending habits or bad investing habits, Maybe it's because they've not aligned them well with their goals. Like you might have aligned goals and then it's just a case of getting the behaviour right. But if you've got underlying it all very, very different goals, then it's probably almost impossible to
0: reconcile. Or no goals. You know, that's what I often hear. I say to people, you know, so why are you doing this? Why are you investing? And there's silence. You know, they don't think, oh, I'm investing because I'm trying to do this or that. You know, some people are absolutely laser focused on achieving a certain thing by a certain time. But other people don't have a goal at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's
1: how I came to investing to begin with, right? I was earning reasonable money at some point, and I'm definitely a saver rather than a spender. I don't like buying stuff, right? I don't like clutter around for a start. (laughs) So I just had the excess money. I was like, well, what, what do I do with it? Therefore, I became an investor. And then the goals came later. And that's often the way. You know, I don't think people
0: have goals often.
1: Okay, we might not have defined goals, but maybe we're working from some kind of budget, and if we're thinking about, oh, how should we combine our finances? Maybe that's the place to
0: start. But you're right. I think the best way to approach it, the most tactful way to approach it is to have a budget, a joint budget between you and your partner.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And before you start combining accounts, ideally. The other thing is, I think there are some like financial principles. It's good to understand. Like if you have an emergency fund, which I hope most people do, it's good to agree with your partner, like what constitutes an emergency right, to spend from this fund?
0: Yeah, we've just had a roof leak. That was an emergency.
1: I mean, most people would see a roof leak as an emergency, but I don't know, what's a more debatable one? My football team's got to the Champions League final. I need to buy tickets. It's an emergency. Not an emergency. (laughs) (laughs) But there's some things that are debatable, like, um, I don't know, my sister has run up a big credit card bill and needs someone to bail her out or she's going to go bankrupt. Does that count as an emergency for your finances?
0: Yes, that's much more of a questionable one, isn't it? And I can see the arguments from
1: both sides of things. So how do you feel about loaning money to family members or close friends? Now, I know it's not directly related to investing, but I guess similar things do come up in investing where you have different opinions on what to do with the money.
0: Yeah, maybe one way to approach it is to say, if you're going to invest a certain pot of money, what would you invest in? And then just compare portfolios, just see what they do, what you do and see how different they are. And then look at the reasons behind that. Maybe there's a difference in understanding of long-term return or what risk is. Maybe that's a good way to tease out the differences. I mean, we often talk about the core
1: portfolio and the fund portfolio idea, right? Like maybe you've got 90% in your core portfolio for your long-term retirement and goals and 10% in your fund portfolio, primarily to keep your hands off the core, but also, yeah, yeah, to make some sort of tactical bets if you are that way inclined. So maybe the idea in a relationship could be, The core portfolio is jointly agreed, jointly owned, and we're investing for our future together. And then if we desire, we've got separate fund portfolios, right, where you don't need the double tick approach. And you can, you know, have disagreements on whether Tesla is a good investment, for example.
0: So it's kind of like planned unfaithfulness. Yeah, would that not be a way of doing it? Yeah, I suppose that would work. And then at least you have a little bit of authority over, you know, the pot of money that you control, which probably is good as well because it makes you feel like you're in control.
1: Yeah, and if you make really bad decisions and blow your fund portfolio, then, you know, you have to sacrifice some of your discretionary spending. Yeah. You're not going to the Champions League final. (laughs) I mean, I guess we've talked a lot about the challenges of investing when in a relationship. But I think if we step back at the end of the day, it's probably better from a financial point of view to be in a relationship. People talk about the singles penalty, don't they?
0: Which is simply the fact that the cost of living's higher if you have two sets of bills than one. You know, on average, I think in the UK, the spending on monthly bills is around just short of £1,900 a month compared to 990 if you live with a partner. So that's a big difference.
1: Yeah, so if you're single, you seem to be spending £860 more a month on bills, which makes sense, you know. You've probably got a one-bedroom flat to yourself rather than sharing it, for
0: instance. Oh, I can mention another science fiction book here.
1: One day we're going to have an episode without a science fiction mention. But (laughs) today is not the day, Roman. What is it?
0: (laughs) So I'm a big fan of Robert Heinlein's books, and one of the concepts he discusses is a line marriage where instead of just having a couple... You've got an entire family, a group of people that live together, almost in a kind of mini commune. Like a tribe. Like a tribe, yeah. And they share money. That's the primary goal. Because what his point is, is that marriage itself is just a way that society's created to legally join assets together. So he says, well, why just do it in twos? Why not do it in larger groups? So you kind of share the parental responsibility. If one person gets ill, the rest of the family looks after them. And, you know, certainly coming from a Persian background, my great-grandfather had more than one wife. And it was often the case, at, you know, in Iran at that time, a long time ago. And the women would share the responsibility of the childcare, for example. I mean, people balk at the idea now. But I just think that, you know, maybe we need to think about that kind of arrangement. Maybe society should be a little bit more flexible when it comes to having these joint relationships than simply man and woman, man and man, woman and woman.
1: All the bases covered there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe we should have more than two people in the kind of financial unit.
1: I didn't expect to end the Valentine's Day episode with an argument for polyamory, but here we
0: go. That's what we're doing. (laughs) We're kind of legal polyamory so that there'd be some kind of financial and legal support for that structure. But at the moment, there isn't. I just think that people should have a little bit more flexibility when they think about these financial relationships and the groupings. You know, why just two? (laughs) I really didn't expect to end the episode on that. (laughs) I mean, you could take
1: that out. No, it's quite funny. I think people will find that funny because it's mental.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the book, if you want to read about that, is called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Well, let's wrap it up, Roman, by going back to... uh, Sanity. Sanity.
1: Going back to like a one-on-one relationship, how most of us are probably living. And I do think it's actually better financially to be in a couple often than it is to be going through life
0: alone. I think that's almost certainly true. And it's also less lonely. You know, it's nice to have a friend and someone you can discuss things with. Investment's very lonely otherwise.
1: You would think that, you know, two heads are better than one, right? And you can ideally, if you're in a supportive relationship, question each other's decisions in a constructive way, point out flaws in the plan and, you know, pull risk
0: between two people. And have someone to blame. I think that's very important. <laughs> you get blamed a lot. Yeah. My rebuttal is usually, it wasn't a recommendation. But
1: interestingly, from this Fidelity study again, only 57% of couples in America say they make retirement and long-term investing decisions jointly. So there are still quite a lot of people in a relationship who are doing this primarily on their own.
0: Which is sad because I think it is quite a lonely process. It's much nicer to do investment with a friend. So if you are finding yourself investing on your own or you want a little bit of support from a community... That's what we offer at PensionCraft. If you want to learn more about that, just go to PensionCraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the
1: week is when it comes to divorce, would you rather keep the pension or the property? I imagine it's a big question facing a lot of people.
0: I mean, I can certainly speak from my own experience here. And it was basically done on who wanted what. So we just discussed it and came up with an agreement that we were both happy with. So we had a third party, this guy who sat with us and just went through all of our assets and we kind of wrote them down on a big whiteboard and then we just decided on how to split it absolutely fairly. I mean, it's great if you can do that, right? Because you
1: avoid all the courts and the lawyers costs. But not everyone is going to be in an amicable position, are they?
0: We didn't manage to avoid lawyer's costs. You know, we it's funny because we were both swapping emails saying how much our lawyers were charging us. Yeah. So our relationship was that good that we could do that. But yeah, I mean, my parents, it was exactly the opposite. You know, big law courts, they lost almost everything, paid huge amounts of lawyers fees. So I think really it depends on how amicable the split up is. I mean, the way this
1: typically seems to play out from everything you read is that in a heterosexual marriage, the woman will typically keep the house. Maybe there's children involved as well, so there's some stability there if they're staying with the wife. And the man will often keep the pension. So it's interesting that in the UK, it seems that according to family law court data, only around 15% of divorces result in the splitting of pension rights. It seems low, doesn't it? Because you'd think that pensions are going to be so valuable to the future financial health of that couple that's going through a divorce.
0: Particularly if the man is earning a lot more than the woman in the relationship, because then, you know, the pension is going to be a much bigger proportion of the overall family assets.
1: And in terms of which would you rather have? Well, maybe from a lifestyle point of view, the house looks particularly appealing but then we've talked before about how there's a lot of cost that comes with owning a house, yeah. which doesn't come with owning a pension. The pension will presumably compound faster than house prices.
0: And it's often the case that the wife will end up with the children, which is also a considerable cost. Obviously, the husband has to support her. Usually the law court will ensure that's the case. And we're talking
1: about husband and wife in this way that's quite typical. It's obviously not always that way. Sometimes the woman will be the higher earner and have a bigger pension. But, you know, typically it seems to be this way around.
0: But I think the best way to approach this is what our mediator did with us, which is to write down the value of all your assets. Now, the complication here is that you don't know how much your assets are worth in a pension because you have to get a valuation. Now, that itself often requires a financial advisor to charge you something like £2,000 or something like that to work out what it's worth, which is tricky, right? Because it's difficult to have something which is uncertain.
1: Is a defined contribution pension not just mark to market or are they trying to work out the future potential value of it? What's the complication?
0: The complication is that the valuation changes day to day for starters, but that's the other point, which is you also have to kind of project the value into the future. And that's very difficult with a pension because equity returns are uncertain. But on average, they're higher than they would be for property, usually. And also, when it comes to the property, you presumably, if
1: you're not selling the property in the divorce, want to get an objective valuation there, which, I don't know, can you rely on a valuation when you're not
0: going to market? Yeah. And that was another problem, which is that, you know, we were worried that the house prices would fall and, you know, the value that we thought it was worth wouldn't be realisable.
1: I mean, if you're doing it perfectly fairly, the obvious thing to do would be the pension gets split in half the house gets split in half. Oh no, you can't do that, right? The kids get split in half, you can't do that. So it's like, like you can't do it equitably, easily. And if you want to even do pension sharing, I know you have to go through the courts, right? You can't just make that decision yourself. But I think there is a lot of concern that often the woman comes away with the house, but no pension. And the man's then in a position where he can buy another house at some point if he's earning a good salary.
0: Because there's still this big divide in salaries between men and women. And if it is the choice of the woman to not take so much time on her career as the man through the early stages of the relationship, well, she'll probably end up with a lower salary than the man as a result of that. So I think this is all part of the cultural problem, which is a splitting of the parenting between the man and the woman, but also the salary divide between men and women. And
1: there are also other things to consider. So we've talked about how on average, women seem to be more risk averse when it comes to their investments. And also... They have a longer life expectancy, right? So the years which they're going to be trying to live off their pension pot will often be longer than the man's and they have smaller pension pots on average. So it's like the worst of both worlds. Well, maybe having a longer life expectancy isn't the worst situation, right? You'd rather have a longer life expectancy, but you'd need a bit more money for that,
0: right? Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess none of us really want to think about the fact that our relationship could all go wrong and end in divorce,
0: But 40% do.
1: Yeah, like 42%, right? So it is worth thinking about. Maybe ahead of time, even when everything's in a really good position, or is that just tempting fate?
0: Yeah, that's a very difficult conversation to have.
1: (laughs) But if you're going into a marriage, say, where there's vastly different levels of wealth between you, that can be tricky.
0: Yeah, I think that's when it would be much more likely that you would have some kind of agreement up front.
1: Yeah, because there's this concept, isn't there, of the marital assets? like often the money and the assets you have before you enter a marriage are kind of treated a bit differently and won't necessarily
0: get shared. But I think this understanding about the value of houses versus pensions, there's just the UK obsession with housing and thinking that it's the best thing ever. Whereas in fact, the pension is just very valuable. So all I'd say is, you know, just be aware of that distinction.
1: So I think often, if it does get acrimonious, whoever comes away with the house is probably thinking, woohoo, I won, I got the house. (laughs) Maybe not, right, in the long term. Maybe not, yeah. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address,
0: mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by
1: Ramin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are
0: encouraged to seek independent financial advice.